The preaching of God's Word then is in Matthew 18, and there verses 18, 19, and 20. For the sake of some context, we'll read from verse 15 onward. Matthew 18, reading from verse 15 through 20. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Last week we considered verses 15 through 17 and the process in dealing with sin that has been identified in the church and likewise the authority that Christ has given to His church to administer this highest and greatest and most weighty censure of excommunication. It is now that Christ provides a clarifying help as He explains how it is that they have this power. And so verses 18-20, through Christ says unto His disciples, Whatsoever ye collectively shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye collectively shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And He explains, of course, appealing to this principle, verse 19, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, It shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. And then he explains why that is. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. This is important, in my name. The Scriptures are regularly setting forth the name of God. And so we have it, of course, in the commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We're taught to pray that hallowed be thy name. And it's not just the syllables that make up the name, for instance, Jesus or Jehovah, but rather it is as a name conveys an identity and expresses the revelation of oneself, so it is here. The name of God is not just the syllables of Jehovah, of Jesus, and so on, but it is rather all whereby He makes Himself to be known. But here it's speaking of His authoritative presence that they aren't acting, as it were, independently, but rather in accordance with the authority of Christ. When you gather together in My name, constituted by the authority that I have given the church, then it is that I personally am administering My purpose through the courts of the church. Brethren, we have no hesitation in saying that this is a massive and glaring oversight of the church today. 
and it is preeminently so among Protestants. Protestants, in their right rejection of the papal abuse of authority and his pretended claim to the superior office of the head of the church, have wrongly responded to say that there's really no such thing as church authority. That at best, church authority is just the teaching of God's Word, and I am, on my own account, at liberty to agree or disagree. I am, at my own account, equal in all things. But notice, Christ is actually saying something different than that. He has no place, as we would see elsewhere, for the usurped and pretended authority of a single man boasting of a single superior office in the church. But he also has no place for the church collectively to behave as if he has not given a real authority to the officers of his church constituted together in his name. So this is a very heavy thing. And as was announced last week, we're in the midst of a disciplined case. And it's difficult and tempting to us to become victims to our culture and think, well, there's much to do about nothing. And this is really just uh, a display. It's not. When it is that the court of Christ's church is constituted according to His authority in His name and has carried itself faithfully in accordance to His revealed will, it is as Christ speaking. If that challenges the Protestant today, it's because the Protestant generally is ignorant of his Bible. It's because the Protestant has erred in a direction of response and reaction overmuch. Instead of being brought to the balance of God's Word, the Protestant largely today has responded by a radical independency of the personal view of the individual. And so when someone's brought under discipline, it's not uncommon specifically in our day to say, well, that's your opinion. And well, that's your decision. I'll just go find another church. And I've got other churches that are saying this, that, and the other thing. Say, well, surely there is the reality of the abuse of authority, but let's be clear, the possibility and even reality of abuse elsewhere does not negate the lawful use of authority when it is rightly administered. And if it is that the individual Christian is saying, my soul is in allegiance to Christ, then it is the soul that's in allegiance to Christ will be in allegiance to Christ here when he says, there am I in the midst of them. That when they, you, the church, binds, I'm binding. When you, the church, Loose and open, I'm opening. See, brethren, the fact that we feel a little squeamish and uneasy is because we have overreacted in a direction that has actually cast off right authority. This is also why there are among pretended Protestants a so-called return to Rome because the Protestant apologetic has dealt unfaithfully with the text of the Bible. And in doing so, people start to study the Bible and say, you know what? Christ seems to have actually given authority to the church. And with ignorance and equal mishandling of the Scriptures, they then 
are brought to the abusive and constrictive authority of the Pope. So not only is it relevant for our particular circumstances regarding the discipline case before us, but it is likewise important for our particular age where there is great ignorance regarding church authority. So notice, central to it all is not the church. Central to it all is not the apostles or officers of the church. Central to it all is Jesus Christ. And so you think of our forefathers and their mottos and rally cries for Christ's uh, uh, covenant, for Christ the King, and all these different ways that they would speak of it. They would acknowledge this thing, that the cause for which they were contending was not a divorced and abstracted church principle, but rather it was a part of the honor belonging to Christ. Why am I willing to give my life for the pure worship of Jesus Christ? Because it's His worship. Why am I willing to be brought to the stocks and endure shame and lose my inheritance and be brought even unto death for Presbyterianism? Because it's Christ's government. You see, when Christ is preeminent, these other things are brought into consideration. To the text, though, we look now at this truth that the judgments of the church in accordance to Christ's will represent the judgment of Christ Himself. We've noted that already when Christ says, as it is, what is bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. What is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And as the fundamental explanation of it, He says in verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in My name, there am I in the midst of them. Well, to help us consider three things. Firstly, the meaning of binding and loosing. Secondly, the authority of binding and loosing. And thirdly, the effect of binding and loosing. So what is the meaning of this expression, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven? Well, in context, immediately you'll notice it's in reference to church discipline. So we saw this last week, verses 15-17, through 17, ultimately acknowledging that if this one guilty of sin, verse 17, uh, neglects to hear the group that comes, tell it to the church, but if this one neglects to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. He is to be, as it were, no longer acknowledged to be in good standing with the church. And he's to be treated as one who is profane and is at odds with Christ. Now, if we could get just that point as we sought to do last week, we would see why there is, in the world's estimation, a severe distancing against those who are under discipline. Because think of this for a moment. If you were in the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, and you were a believer, and you loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and in your best moment, you saw someone walk up to Christ, spit in His face, slap Him across the head, and speak all manner of indignities, your soul would be in turmoil. And whatever our weakness might lead us to do, surely we would say, my soul would abhor the one who's doing that to Christ. If not, there's something wrong with us. But brethren, 
when one has been diligently pursued, faithfully pursued, and has remained against Christ, they have done that against Christ. And however much we might love them, do we not love Christ more? And do we not see the indignity and the dishonor done to His name? But Christ is answering a question as to by what authority does the church do these things? And he uses this expression of binding and loosing. In the context of church discipline, he's telling us that first and foremost, this meaning is an exercise of church authority. We spent time on this somewhat last week, so we need not go over all the same uh, material again. But you'll notice he's speaking unto his disciples, and he's exhorting them unto these things. And so as he's exhorting them, he's exhorting them to exercise an authority given to them. And so this previous mention, as was pointed out in the reading of God's Word, is found in Matthew 16. When he says to Peter, notice the expression verse 19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now in our age of smartphones and all the electronics, children may not realize this as much as they once did. But a physical key, which is nearly universal, was instantly recognizable as something that unlocked something and thus made it possible to access or to lock something. And so it's telling, of course, that even today, when something is electronic, often there's a light that will show a lock or a light that will show a key because it's a symbol for the mind to say, this is what's going on. And so a key unlocks, giving access, or a key locks and keeps back. And so most of us today, when it is that we leave our houses, we lock our doors. And the purpose of that is, of course, to allow no one in that shouldn't be in. Or if we're out of town and we have someone coming over, what do we do? We leave a key with somebody that can be given to them so they then can unlock the door and get in our house and stay the night perhaps and other things of that sort. The point is, a key is the instrument of locking and unlocking. And by consequence, it is the instrument that either closes off and keeps out or opens up and lets in. And that's the language as well, both in chapter 16 and in chapter 18, when Christ uses this language of loosing and binding. So we hear the word binding and we often think of tying something up, but really a knot is a type of lock. If you think about it, we uh, tie something up, we want to stay put. We tie our shoes so that they're locked up, as it were, on our foot. We untie them to unlock them so we can then take our shoes off, right? The point is that this expression even in the text itself and seeing with greater clarity to the previous context is testifying of the exercise of authority to let in and to keep out. The church has authority given to it by Christ the King, both to let in and to keep out. Now, we acknowledge from the outset that any lawful authority both can be and has been abused. From the most basic of a husband's authority of his wife to that which follows after, consequentially, 
a father and a mother's authority over their children, to more broadly the government of a state, nation, etc., to civilly the authority of a boss or CEO, to ecclesiastically the authority of a minister, session, presbytery, etc. All of these things both can be and have been abused. And it is right for us to grieve that. And it is right for us to contend against it. And it is right for us to deplore it. But brethren, don't we see in our own age the error of saying the abuse of authority means there is no authority. And so we see children today who are being taught by seemingly teachers who would have authority, you don't need to listen to your parents. You don't need to listen to your parents, what they tell you to do, what you are, and so on. And really, they're usurping something. And they're teaching children to cast off the authority of their parents. And we have, of course, the wretched and wicked abuse that has been committed against women. Which then has led some to say, you don't have to be under submission to your husband. You see, the point is, one of the wretched consequences of abuse in the life of sinners is that it expands this this, uh, casting off of the right use of authority. What we have to do as Christians is to come to terms with what does the Scripture say? What is right? And so if the abuse of something is wrong, we must fight against the abuse. If the neglect of something is wrong, we must fight against the neglect. But we must not fight against the neglect in an overreaction to become abusers. And we must not fight against the abuse over much to become those who neglect. We have to be taught what the Scriptures say. And it starts here, seeing this, that the meaning of binding and loosing is an exercise of authority that God has given to His people, both to open up and let people into the church and to shut off and keep people out from the church. And so, it's an exercise of church authority, which then provides entrance to or exclusion from God's kingdom. To bind, as noted, is to lock up, and to loose is, as it were, to unlock. You can think in older days, they would have this notion of riding a horse, and they would take the reins, and if they arrived at their destination or were stopping off, they take the reins and they would attach it and sort of knot it up against a tree or against a fence post so that the horse couldn't wander off. It was bound, right? But when they wanted to go, they would then take the reins off of that and then get on the horse and ride. They were free. They were loose and able to go. And so it is here. The binding is the binding and locking up. The loosing is an unlocking and allowing entrance. Well, here we see the same thing with reference to God's kingdom. How do we know it has to do with God's kingdom? Well, notice, first off, the greater context is verse 15, if thy brother, so one who is in fellowship with you in the church, and then verse 17, what happens if he fails to hear the church? He's to be treated now in a different regard. He's to be treated as a profane and wicked man, a rebel against the cause of Christ. Moreover, notice the language in verse 18, whatsoever he shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. 
So there's a representation taking place in the earthly theater of what's taking place and transpiring in the heavenly. So what's taking place on earth in accordance to God's will, Christ's will and His authority as we've seen and as we will see, is representative of what's taking place in heaven. And so there is a significant activity taking place. This is why Paul will say, you know, regarding the man who had his uh, father's wife, he said, you know, when you be gathered together in my spirit with you in the name of Christ, cast this man out. Hand him over to Satan. And so you see this difference. He's no longer to be treated as in good standing in the church. He's to be cast out. The exercise of authority, as it were, to lock him out of the fellowship of the church. Well, secondly, the authority of binding and loosing. This is tremendously helpful what we see in the passage because in our zeal to follow the Lord, we need to make sure our zeal is governed by His revelation. And notice a couple of things. Firstly, the authority of binding and loosing is neither private nor exclusively congregational. How do we know it's not private? By the simple acknowledgement that he uses the plural, ye. Whatsoever ye shall bind, I say unto you. Right. So there's that. So in other words, an individual does not have the authority of his own, whatever his judgment is, to bind and loose. So not only does this attack the uh, you know, ridiculous claims of the Pope, but it also attacks the individualistic principle of our current age. I as an individual, even as a minister on my own, have no authority to excommunicate in my own name or by my own office. Uh, nor does an individual Christian. But also we see this authority does not rest with the congregation properly so considered. How do we see that? Well, in context, even here, you can see that he's speaking to the disciples that are gathered with him. And those disciples, given the previous context, include the apostles, Peter and so on. But as again, no text should be interpreted in isolation. We go back to where this expression is first used. And what do we see? He's speaking with his apostles and particularly Peter, who was an apostle. And so this authority is not given generally to the church. It's given rather representatively to its officials. And you can see that even in the context when you, whatever your status, whatever you're standing in the church, have a brother who sins against you, you need privately to go to them. And then secondly, if that fails, you need to bring two or three to establish the claim. But if that fails, you need to go to the church. We don't have time to go into all the technical details, both of Christ's day and the terms He's using. But we see here an appeal upward. And moreover, you can see it in the exercise of church discipline. Paul is saying, my authority is to be gathered with the church gathered in Corinth to the excommunicating of that man. And we can see it in the past, in the Old Testament. Church discipline doesn't start in the New Testament. It's as old as the church is old, into the Old Testament. And so when there was a sin that was egregious and scandalous, what was to happen? The elders were to gather together to try the case, and if guilty, to then administer the due sentence. So it is still today. So it's not a private, nor is it strictly or properly a congregational authority. 
Rather, it is an authority that is given to the church officers. We don't need to spend much time on this, but just to reference once more what was referenced last week, Hebrews chapter 13 reminds us that there are those in the church that bear authority. And so Paul, or in Hebrews anyway, it tells us in verse 7, remember them which have the rule over you. And in verse 17 of Hebrews 13, obey them that have the rule over you. Acts chapter 20 speaks of uh, the elders that have been made overseers of the church. And so everywhere we see this theme. There are officials, by which the term is referring to officers, who bear authority given by Christ. And so the importance of this is to realize that whereas the church has responsibility both to do what it can to address offenders congregationally, that the activity of binding and loosing is an authority given to the officials of the church. And yet remember, not officials merely as individual officers, but as they are assembled in the name of Christ. So again, look at the text, Matthew 18, when Christ says, not only whatsoever ye and so on, but He says in verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in My name, there am I in the midst of them. Here's a good help for us when we think about praying in Christ's name. You know, as little children, we hear that phrase and we use that phrase and so we conclude our prayer, in your name, amen. It's a good phrase, of course, but it's only, in, it's only good insofar as we understand what we're saying. Because what we're saying is, by the authority of Christ. Father, I'm asking you to do these things, not by my authority, not for my name's sake, but for the name and sake and cause of Christ. And that helps us understand what's going on here. Where these two or three are gathered. Notice he doesn't say, where one is in my name, but where two or three are gathered in my name. I am in the midst of them, plural. This is why no member of session or presbytery or other church courts can individually speak with the authority of session, presbytery, or church courts. Because Christ gives that authority to that court constituted in His name. This is why there's plurality of elders. This is why there's a representative court of presbytery where there's plurality of ministers and elders and so on. Because no individual minister, no individual elder, howsoever gifted and able, is indeed the one bearing this authority. Even in 1 Corinthians 5, when there's this egregious sin, Paul doesn't say, I've excommunicated him. He says, you need to gather together in my spirit with you saying, I'm in agreement and put this man out. And so not even an apostle has the authority of himself in his own office to execute these things. Why is that? Well, because properly considered, the church court of ministers and elders is not the master exercising its will. It is the servant exercising the master's will. Church discipline rightly administered by its officers is representative of Christ. Again, brethren, understand this. The potential squeamishness that grips us with such statements 
is not because something's being set out of accord with God's Word, but because the current Protestant understanding of things is out of accordance with God's Word. The reaction that many have had against spiritual abuses of church authority has led them to align more historically with both the radical Anabaptists of the Reformation age to the previous antinomians and other licentious sects that have been since the beginning of the church. The church is taught by Christ to come under this truth that elders and ministers duly ordained are given an authority by Christ that other Christians don't have. And yet that authority must be and can only be rightly exercised in accordance to the mind of the king. So you think of it this way. Paul elsewhere calls himself an ambassador and likewise steward and so on. Both of those are helpful uh, uh, concepts because an ambassador isn't given license to invent his own terms, right? An ambassador to a nation isn't said, you know, you come to figure it out and you deal with it and so on. No, the ambassador goes with boundaries. You're allowed to agree to these things and you're allowed to permit those things. Anything beyond that, you need to come back and seek permission, right? Here are the boundaries of your commission. And to act contrary to that is actually to usurp the authority that is above him. So it is with the church. The church must labor in its official acts to be sure that it is in accordance to the revealed will of the king. You want an example of this in the Bible, you can go to Acts chapter 15. And what do you see? There's a controversy that's erupted in the church. And what happens? You have an, the first general assembly, they're gathered. You have apostles and prophets and evangelists, extraordinary officers. You have pastors and elders assembled. And the apostles don't say, listen, we're the extraordinary ones. We'll take it from here. But rather, there's a deliberative assembly. And there's a hearing of the case. What's going on? What are the facts? There's a searching of the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures say? And then in determining what the Scriptures say, there is an authoritative decree that issues forth to which every congregation and Christian is bound to subject themselves. Why? Why is that? Because what's taking place is a testimony of the revealed will of God applied to the circumstance. That's why when the church adds rules or takes away rules, it is a form of spiritual tyranny to the soul. You can read in our confession, there is a liberty of the conscience which the Lord has left free from the doctrines and commandments of men. That's why no presbytery, no general assembly, certainly no bishop, episcopally considered, and no pope has any authority to demand any additional commandments or doctrines to be obeyed or believed. And they don't have any authority to say, well, I know the king says you should believe this or do this, but we're saying you can set it aside. No one in the church has that authority. But what they do have authority to do is to survey the circumstances before them, to search the Scriptures by the aid of the Spirit, and to apply that word faithfully. And when that is done, it is what is taking place by the mind of Christ. 
And so it must be, if it is to indeed bear the authority, it is to be according to the revealed will of the king. Otherwise, it can't be in his name. It can't be by his authority. So think of it this way, a good illustration that many have used before and even in our own presbytery. A pastor has real authority in the congregation. But a pastor can't go into your church or into your your house and say, you know, I like what you've done with the design of your home. And since I'm your pastor, what I would like you to do is paint the color of your walls a different color. And a person to say, well, you know, the pastor has said as much. And so we're going to change the color of our walls to that way is actually to misunderstand the authority given to the pastor. The pastor doesn't have that authority. The pastor has authority to instruct, to command, to exhort, to comfort, to counsel, and so on, according to God's word and by his boundaries. But for a pastor to come in and say, listen, you need to start eating this type of food, and you need to start uh, painting it this kind of color, and you need to plant this kind of garden, you need to plant that kind of tree, is to falsely assume to himself an authority he doesn't have. Well, that's obvious, I trust, just as it would be obvious if a husband of one wife were to go into a different home and say, here are the meals you're going to start making. And the other house says, well, why should we do that? And the husband says, well, I'm a husband. Well, you may be a husband, but you're not the husband of this home. And so you don't have authority to address those things, right? Authority, in other words, has to be exercised in accordance to the boundaries that have been issued for it. That's why the government, civil government, should be obeyed in all lawful commands. But when it transcends and it goes beyond, transgresses its authority, there is a right of the people to resist. That's not sinful. That's righteous. Because the civil magistrate has no authority to go beyond its boundaries. Just as the church Uh, governance has no authority to go beyond its boundaries just as the family head has no right to go beyond its boundaries well if the church is to indeed exercise its authority faithfully it must be in accordance to the revealed will of the king because after all ministers and elders at best are but under shepherds of the chief shepherd jesus christ it also must be according to the reality of the matter before them. This is why there's effort and diligence and patience in finding out what's going on. You know, one person goes, two witnesses, three witnesses go, and then the church comes. And so with a a, a patient approach, there is the discovering of what's taking place, what's taking place, what's the reality. And then there's the bearing of the authority of God's Word against it. And then it is to be exercised by the ordained officers to carry out the purpose and will of Christ. Well, thirdly then, what's the effect of binding and loosing? In some sense, this is quite easy. Children, you get home today and you rush to the door. You try to open the door and it doesn't budge. And you realize, well, it's not turning. What's going on? It's locked. How do you get in? Well, either your parents have to tap something on their phone or they have to tap something on a remote or if they get a physical key out and unlock the door. And once it's unlocked, you can open it and go in. 
That's the force of what Christ is getting at here. When you bind something in accordance to all that's just been noticed and acknowledged, it is truly bound against them. They can't, as it were, find a different way in. This is the travesty of false views of church government today. When it is that someone is lawfully disciplined and then they unlawfully are, as it were, permitted all the rights and privileges of the members of the church, there is a grave false teaching going on to the soul of that one. Because in heaven, they are bound out until they repent and acknowledge their sins and are brought indeed to then be absolved and brought in with peace into the kingdom of heaven. Because the effect of binding and loosing when it is faithfully administered in accordance to the will of Christ is indeed a binding and loosing of them in or out of the church. They are either being shut out or they are being let in. Brethren, this is significant, of course, in earth to the individual, the individual who is lawfully, faithfully excommunicated is indeed visibly and in this earthly realm forbidden by Christ to enjoy the fellowship of the saints, to enjoy the administration of the sacraments, to enjoy the peace and joy that is the possession and right and inheritance of believers in good standing. So when they are excommunicated, it's not as it were a flimsy and a vain attempt to say something soberly like a wagging of the finger. It is by the authority of Christ a testimony. You are locked out. Brethren, that's sobering. It also tells the church generally that if that's the case, there is no right of anyone to overturn that censure unless and until there is a right dealing with the censure. And so for a church pretendingly to say, well, you know, that's not how we think of church discipline, so you're welcome here and we'll put our arm around you and be happy. What's going on is multiple sins, but I want you to think for a moment what's going on in the sinner who's been excommunicated at that point. They're given the equivalent to what God upbraids against His people of the Old Testament. There are ministers of the Gospel saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're being told at that point by a church and even by one who has been given some authority to some extent that everything's okay, but has not dealt with the fact they're locked out. Children, think of this. You're locked out of the house tonight. You're out of the house accidentally. And you knock on your mom or dad's window. And you say, I'm outside of the house. Let me in. And they speak through the window and they say, it's okay. You're in the house still. You would say, what are you talking about? Like, I'm outside. And they open the window and they say, I'll put my hand on you. You're okay. You know, feel my touch and so on. And they, you'd be sitting there saying, well, I'm appreciative, but I'm literally still outside of the house. I need you to let me in. What will they do? Well, they'll go to the front door or the back door, wherever it is. They'll unlock the door. They'll open it and let you in. What we have today in the horrendous reality of all manner of error regarding church government is when there is a lawful binding and locking out and shutting out and churches apart from the due order Christ has given say, 
you know, big deal. Come in and enjoy all these things. What they're effectively saying spiritually is this. Though in the court of Christ you're bound out of heaven, we're going to say everything's okay. Brethren, that is a great evil. This is where the pretended kindness of some is actually the most malicious evil that can be performed. To say peace, peace, everything's okay. They're cruel. They're tyrants. They're wicked. You'll be fine with us. Oh, how wrong they were to say these things. You come with us and so on. What they're actually doing is saying this. Though Christ has barred you from the fellowship of the church, will act and say to you that you're okay. That is wickedness. It is a great sin of our day. The opposite is true. When someone wrongly says you're locked out, you're bound out, and you are indeed, as it were, no longer given the privilege of all of these things and the peace and so on that should be yours, the horror that can grip that soul is indeed the consequence of the abuse of church authority. And so it is with the greatest of faithfulness and care that such keys are to be administered. Think of it this way. In our day, we don't have so clearly the gatekeeper. You know, you can go to the board. We don't need to get political and so on. But consider this for a moment. Wherever the port of entry is in our nation, and there the agent of the nation that is charged with ensuring that the one that is permitted in has a right to come in. They look at the documents and they say, well, this one is a confirmed uh, terrorist. This one is a confirmed enemy of the state. This one has a purpose to disrupt and destroy our nation. Come on in. We're going to be kind. You know, we're going to be generous. We're going to be uh, uh, you know, very helpful to you. Come on in. The end effect of that supposed kindness is the disruption and destruction of the nation whom the gatekeepers are to be protecting. But similarly, if the agent looks at the passport, it's a verified passport to the United States of America, and the person is under no rebellious uh, rebellious treason, and they say, we're not letting you in. You're going to stay out of our country. You're going to stay out of it. There is a likewise abuse against the individual. What's the point? Well, in some sense, church government is like this. It's saying, you're welcome in. Not by my judgment, independent, but by the judgment of Christ. Or, you're not welcome in. You need to repent first, and then you'll be welcome in. So it is in earth to this individual, but likewise to the church, guidance as to how to go about treating that one. In heaven, less properly is it an effect It's actually a display of Christ's judgment. This is why he says, after all else he says, when two or three be gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. So think of it. Due process is followed, faithful church discipline administered, and then the individual says, well, that's just your view. That's generally the approach that people give. If we had eyes to see, what we would see is, they're actually saying that to Christ. Christ, that's just your view. See, that's the fundamental issue. The person who is in sin loves to bark and speak against and throw up dust against the instruments of Christ's judgment. But really what they're doing is 
that against Christ the King. It is Christ's standing in the midst of the church court that is saying, I have led my officers to this point by the guidance of my Word and Spirit, and I am saying by my authority, you are forbidden to be treated as if you are in good standing with me. It is outlawed. Likewise, however notorious the sinner, as for instance the man who had his father's wife, upon repentance is to be brought in. And the church has no right at that point to say, well, such heinousness was shown that we're going to keep an arm's distance from you. No. Christ says, I have exercised my officers by my word and spirit, and you are to be brought in and restored to the privileges that belong to the church. Brethren, there's much, of course, that needs to be said, but we close by seeing the importance, firstly, of faithfulness among church officers. Brethren, if there is indeed any gripping of a sense here, you should be led to get on your faces and pray earnestly, God, give our officers, pastors, elders, wisdom. They must be given divine wisdom. Make them cause them to set aside all the distractions of this world to give themselves to the diligent searching of the Scriptures because the well-being of the church stands or falls, among other things, with the right administration of church discipline. So you think, historically, three marks of the church, the preaching of the Gospel, the right administration of sacraments, and the faithful exercise of church discipline. Where you saw those three faithfully done, you saw a church in health and strength. What happens when one of them falters? You see a body, a church, start to become unwell. Whatever they feel like, they are becoming unwell. Well, then here is a cause for us to pray. Brethren, here's a practical point. We've prayed earnestly, Lord, raise up men. And we've seen Reverend Shelton installed, ordained and installed. We've seen Reverend Scott inducted. And we rejoice in that. We have need now to pray earnestly, Lord, with all of that Satan would bring to their uh, attention, with all the stirrings up that he might bring into their life, give them grace. Make them faithful. And you see what happens is when we get a little principle like this, what's amazing is it, sh- it shoves out the extraneous waste and vanity of this world. I don't have time to play around with life because I have a responsibility to pray for these who are charged by Christ. They would faithfully exercise themselves. Pastors and elders need to look at this and say, I don't have time to play around with life because sooner or later such things are going to come to me that are going to demand that I understand the Scriptures, that I'm a man of faith and prayer. And so I must, in the more peaceful times, be diligent searching the Scriptures so that when those times come up, I'm equipped by the Lord not to ignore or to abuse the authority that He's given. Brethren, pray. And officers, pray. We see as well the great sin of ignoring or mocking faithful church discipline. You remember when David sent messengers to comfort a king, a foreign king, and the king's counselors said, this is David just seeking it out. You know, gonna, they're going to attack. And they shame the messengers, the ambassadors. And what happens is, 
The men come back shamed and they wait a distance off. David hears word of it and he gets his army together and he goes at war against that nation. Here's the point. To shame the ambassadors of the king is to shame the king himself. To ignore the ambassadors of the king is to ignore the king. To mock and ridicule the messengers and instruments is to mock the king. It is not a secondary, light-hearted issue. It is primary because it's Christ. His kingship is at stake. So brethren, be stirred up then, both to pray earnestly for the glory of God. Oh, we feel this, don't we? The case that is unraveling before us, that the Lord would so bless this means of grace to the recovery of sinners, to the warning and strengthening of His own people and the promoting of His praise. Why is this important? It's important because it's Christ's teaching. It's important because it protects and preserves the church by His blessing. But it's important also because it is the means appointed by which sinners in rebellion against Christ would be taught their wickedness brought low before Him and turned to repent and call upon Him. May the Lord so bless. Would you stand with me for prayer?